A great American president, Abraham Lincoln, said that his country was the last best hope of Earth, a nation with a special mission to save mankind. I'm Professor Adam Smith, director of the Rothermere American Institute at Oxford, and on this podcast I'll be exploring how this powerful idea shapes America. we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The most compelling moment of Joe Biden's inauguration in January 2021 was the performance by a charismatic young writer, Amanda Gorman, of her poem, The Hill We Climb. The title is a reference to a sermon by John Winthrop, the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which he apparently gave in 1630, somewhere on the passage across the Atlantic. It is one of America's most powerful founding myths, the pilgrims on an errand into the wilderness to create a new model society. We shall be like a city upon the hill, Winthrop was supposed to have said, the eyes of the world upon us, separated yet visible. Like the ark, the responsibilities of such a community were awesome, the prospect of failure terrifying. So that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world, Winthrop said. We shall open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God and all professors for God's sake. We shall shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us till we be consumed out of the good land whither we are going. Winthrop was challenging his followers to serve as an inspiration to the churches of Christendom and invoking the authority of God to judge their collective enterprise. Winthrop died a century and a half before the revolution, so obviously he had no conception of the United States of America. And the phrase, a city upon a hill, fell out of general public use until the mid-20th century. But American nationalism incorporated that core Protestant idea of being the elect nation. That, after all, is what Lincoln meant when he referred to America as the last best hope of Earth. The image of a city on a hill was the perfect metaphorical expression of the idea of American exceptionalism, the claim that America is not only different, but uniquely so, and probably uniquely better. So how has this idea of America as a city upon a hill shaped American history and identity? To discuss this, I'm joined by Sam Hazelby, a historian of religion and American nationalism and senior editor at Aon, and by David Frum, senior editor at The Atlantic, and someone who knows a thing or two about political rhetoric, the former speechwriter for President George W. Bush. David and Sam, thank you both um, very much for joining me. Sam, let's start with, with Winthrop himself as the man most associated with this uh, metaphor, which of course comes from the Gospel of Matthew, comes from the King James Version of the Bible. What was Winthrop getting at? Well, as you rightly pointed out, Adam, of course, Winthrop could have had no conception whatsoever of the United States of America. So he, of course, wasn't talking about a nation or nationalism in anything like a modern sense. What he really meant was that the colonists, the settlers would be, that their conduct would, would have to be a model and that they would be on display, that they would be under the scrutiny of God. 
the Puritan settlement of New England was very peculiar in the context of, of the New World, of the Western Hemisphere, of the Americas. They were a highly literate society. They were relatively egalitarian. Uh, they came with women. That was unusual. Uh, they settled for the purpose of making a long-term home for families. That was unusual. And so being on a hill is a way of describing being scrutinized and being conspicuous. So this is one of the origin stories of European settlement in North America as those pilgrims sailing to Massachusetts. There were, of course, many other origins, many other origins of European settlement aside from anything else. But Sam, how has this this idea, that Puritan idea expressed in that sermon by John Winthrop, how did it shape early American history, you know, leading up to the, the American Revolution? We're, we're living through now, I think, a kind of switch or a, a, cert, a certain reversal where for a very long time, the cultural power of New England institutions uh, really put forward New, New England as the national origin story. One of the reasons that, that people always preferred the New England and the Puritan model is because they weren't as directly implicated in slavery. They weren't a slave society in Puritan New England. Now, we know that they were involved in slavery in all kinds of complex ways. Uh, but we have all of these kind of locutions and phrases like city on a hill, town hall, that have passed into the broader political culture that, that we think of as, as being kind of signature or distinctive American uh, institutions. And when you say town hall last Sam, you, you're talking about the ideal of a town hall meeting. Yes. So that's the notion of it being a small community. And I mean, one of the things that Winthrop was was stressing there is in in that sermon, which was wasn't first printed until the 19th century. Right. But if this sermon is is what he actually said, he was stressing the importance of working together. We must be knit together in this work as one man. And that's also sort of expressed in the town hall idea, isn't it, that you're getting at, that we all come together and make a collective decision as one community. That's right. And we see the legacy of that in the uh, choice of format, even through recent uh, decisions to format presidential debates as in, in what they call a town hall format. I mean, we, we, we begun here, and the, the phrase the city upon a hill, we're locating in this in this sermon of John Winthrop's in in, in 1630, this pilgrim emigre from uh, religious persecution, as he understood it in in Britain. But there's also a kind of secularized version of the same idea that that emerges around the time of the revolution in the late 18th century. So you think of uh, Tom Paine talking about a tabula rasa, a new sheet to write upon, that that America is turning the page and is able to begin the world anew. I mean, that's a a Lockean phrase, that we begin the world anew. That idea that the society being created in the new world, uh, it it creates an opportunity to build a new, brand new social compact, you know, free from all the ingrained, encrusted hierarchies, the aristocracies and so on. Free of all those things, you can create a new society. That that sounds like a kind of secularized version of that Winthropian notion. I think that's exactly right. And in that sense of a blank slate, as you put it, the pain phrase was we have it. Another phrase of his was we have it in our power to begin the world anew. And this became a core component of American nationalism. Well, when Lincoln wrote that phrase, the last best hope David. in 1862, I think it was, it had a bite and force that is hard to conjure up now. 
the way of life for which the South had rebelled against the Union, the big house, the laborers toiling in the fields, very few people in the society had full political rights. Most people who toiled did not have political rights. They were, most people who toiled were some form or other of property um, uh, to the people in the big house. That was the norm. That's how it was not only in the American South and not only in the Caribbean and South America. That's how it was across most of the continent of Europe. That's how it was across all of China, how it was across all of India, how it was in Japan, how it was in Russia. That's how it was everywhere. The civilization that Lincoln was leading the fight for, the way he was reconceptualizing the North, because um, he, the North was had not been quite that before, but it was going to be this way now, was a new, truly new thing in the way human beings were organized. And many of these ideas had been pioneered in, in the United Kingdom, in Britain and in Scotland, but it was they were getting their full... But in 1862, Britain was still a predominantly agricultural society. Uh, and uh, even England was still predominantly an agricultural society. But the northern United States was breaking out and taking these ideas from other places and building a new kind of world. Now, this, in the 20th century, would, this way of life would spread across the planet. The ideas of democracy, the ideas of, of um, a fully market-oriented society, breaking the cake of custom. So when we talk about American exceptionalism as, as a describer it encourages Americans to think they don't need to know about anybody else. And one of the things we see when we study public policy and we argue about politics, Americans really are averse to thinking, well, we've got a problem here. How did the Danes handle this problem? How did the French do it? How, maybe there's something in Japan we can borrow. Maybe someone has been here before us and we could learn from them, even from their mistakes. Maybe their mistakes are applicable. And we tend not to do that because we have this idea that was maybe true. 100 years ago, but was maybe, is maybe not true now that the American experience is so very different from that of comparably advanced pure democracies. I often have this discussion with friends of mine who work on 19th century American history really is, um, and, and I feel I'm probably a bit of a, an outlier now in the scholarly community in that I, I basically agree with you that I think in, in the, in the mid-1860s, if you were white and if you were male, coming to the northern states, to the free states, was about as good as it would get anywhere in the world. And that was certainly the view among British radicals in the 1850s and 60s. And that was why when the news of Lincoln's assassination reached Britain, there were these great outpourings of grief, in part because of this sense that what he represented and what the North represented in the Civil War was, as you say, David, a possibility of a new kind of society. And the Union, the United States, was the container for that. And it, was, it wasn't the only place that approached it, but it was the political entity which could carry forward these ideas of equality and opportunity and material prosperity for white men. If we're right that that was broadly true in a global sense in the mid-19th century, it has become steadily less true since. I want to talk about the kind of recovery of the the phrase a city upon a hill and to talk more than about how it has been used in the 20th and 21st century and and why. I mean, I, I think it was John Kennedy who recovered the phrase of John Winthrop, I believe, in a in a speech in 1961, just before he was inaugurated. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think we have to understand to begin with the extent to which there has been um, a very long and powerful Anglo-Protestant monopoly over political power in American history. 
uh, it's easy to forget. It's easy for Americans to forget that uh, even anti, how powerful anti-Catholicism was, how, how powerful anti-Judaism was until the 1960s, uh, and how those really, in some senses, collapsed from uh, um, the main, the excluding Jews and Catholics from elite institutions. So it was Kennedy who reintroduced the phrase into America, but it was his speechwriter Theodore Sorensen, a Jewish American from Kansas, who wrote the speech. And I think that gives us the answer, or one of the answers that we're looking for here is that American exceptionalism has been a very effective avenue for assimilation into the elite of people who are previously excluded from, from that class. The eyes of all people are truly upon us, and our governments in every branch, at every level, national, state, and local, must be as a city upon a hill, constructed and inhabited by men aware of their great trust and their great responsibilities. For we are setting out upon a voyage in 1961, no less hazardous than that undertaken by the Arabella in 1630. We are committing ourselves to tasks of statecraft no less awesome than that of governing the Massachusetts Bay Colony, beset as it was by terror without and disorder within. Well, this is a point I think we really need to pound home here, is the term American exceptionalism and the idea of American exceptionalism did not begin as a compliment. It began as a criticism. Uh, the point was that it, the idea, and I think the phrasing actually comes from the Marxian tradition, which says there's a proper way for a, a capitalist society to develop. Um, it's supposed to be built on the basis of feudalism. It's supposed to uh, develop class consciousness among the workers. They're supposed to emerge a self-conscious workers party. And a Marxist theorist had then had to confront the United States, the country where, as Marx himself said, capitalism had developed most, quote unquote, shamelessly. And the United States was failing to unfold on proper Marxian lines. So there are two explanations. Either Marxism was wrong, and that was obviously unthinkable, or the United States was wrong. The United States was not developing properly. Um, it, was not, it was not behaving as the laws of history decreed it should. And so you needed to explain this American exception. Why wasn't it unfolding the way Great Britain did and the way Germany did in developing a workers' party? Famous Marxian essay, why is there no socialism in the United States? Um, and Americans internalized this. They had a feeling that there was something wrong with the American way. I'm going to quote here from a short passage from Henry James, the great American writer of the 19th century, who was explaining what it felt like to be an American. No sovereign, no court, no personal loyalty, no aristocracy, no church, no clergy, no army, no diplomatic service, no country gentlemen, no palaces, no castles, nor manors, nor old country houses, nor parsonages, nor thatched cottages, nor ivied ruins, nor cathedrals, nor abbeys, and he goes on and on and on. No Oxford, no Cambridge, I think he says in the next bit of that quote, David. Imagine that. What a terrible thought. So the idea is that is that America is weird. And as you're pointing out there, uh, David, the actual phrase American exceptionalism is, is a Marxist idea trying to explain why it was that the United States had not developed in the way that Western Europe had. Why was there no... Actually, of course, there was socialism in the United States, but there wasn't a, a big, powerful Labour Party as there was in Western Europe. So it was a way of identifying American difference without uh, an indeed negative difference without any assumption of, of positivity. And yet, the idea of, of America as a 
positive model, or at least the idea of America as unexampled, to use a kind of early modern phrase, without parallel, and therefore with a special responsibility in the way that Winthrop was articulating. Not necessarily to say better, but with perhaps the potential or the responsibility to try and show how it would be to be better. That that idea did exist in the at the moment of creation of the nation in the late 18th century, even while the phrase a city upon a hill may not have been on everybody's lips, and even while the phrase American exceptionalism had yet to be coined. But the idea, that idea of America as a special place was at stake at the creation of the nation. What do you think? That's right. We, we, I think it's helpful to distinguish between genealogy and history here, because if you take a kind of genealogical approach, yes, the phrase is itself not only Marxist, but uh, was Stalin who came up with the phrase American exceptionalism. That doesn't mean that people who use the phrase today are Stalinists, however. <laughs> so the, the, there's, there's two, I think, historically kind of broad ways of thinking about American exceptionalism. And, and, and one, the more prevalent has been part of American history since uh, the 18th century, since the first nationalist revolutionaries, is that, that America, the meaning, of course, the United States, and even that appropriation of the word of America for the United States is part of this ideology. Uh, but, but there's two broad ways. One is that uh, the United States of America would hold some kind of special moral lesson for the rest of humankind, that the United States of America contained some kind of unique positive example that the rest of humanity uh, needed to learn from. But, and that's been around since the 18th century in various forms. The other way is that, and we see this too, uh, is that is that you don't really need the other form of American exceptionalism that we see still today quite often is that, is that American history can't be understood uh, in terms of any other history. Only, you only need to know the history of the United States to understand what's happening. The past few days when I've been at that window upstairs, I've thought a bit of the shining city upon a hill. The phrase comes from John Winthrop, who wrote it to describe the America he imagined. What he imagined was important because he was an early pilgrim, an early freedom man. He journeyed here on what today we'd call a little wooden boat. And like the other pilgrims, he was looking for a home that would be free. David, the president who is most associated with the phrase the city upon a hill is, of course, Ronald Reagan, who used it multiple times, not least in his farewell address when he left the White House in January 1989. Why was it so useful as a phrase to Ronald Reagan? Reagan came to the fore politically in, in the election of 1964. Um, he gave this famous speech for Barry Goldwater and soon after that uh, ran for governor of California, served two terms, and then began running for president in 1968, tried, uh, tried again in um, uh, 1976, and then finally successfully in 1980. Uh, the period from 1964 to 1980 was a very tough period in American history, a period of real questioning. Not only Vietnam and Watergate, but this a massive rise in crime that changed the way American cities were organized. Uh, race riots that uh, on a scale of destructiveness that hadn't been seen in a, in a century. And, and a challenge to American industrial organization that upset the way the economy of the country worked. Um, and so there was a kind of psychic crisis. Uh, Reagan, in, the idea in 1964 of Ronald Reagan as president would have seemed 
I mean, literally laughable. But by 1980, he was a, a decisively powerful, popular uh, candidate for president and then a massively reelected president. Because what his president came to mean in the minds of many people, including people who had not supported him, was he was someone who was an antidote to this spiritual crisis that had raged from 1964 and to, 19, to the early 1980s. And when he began to talk about his version of the, the shining city on a hill. Yes, he added the word shining, didn't he? For Winthrop, it was a city. It was a shining city for Ronald Reagan. Uh, like Winthrop like, is warning. Everyone's looking at you people. Be on your best behavior. And, and, and Reagan, an actor, said, are they looking at me? Well, give them that, flash <laughs> them that million-dollar smile, people. <laughs> I've spoken of the shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace. A city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. I mean, Reagan was a man you literally could not take a bad photograph of him. And that was his vision of the United States. It would be a place you literally could not take a bad photograph of. And so he he was giving, he was infusing, transferring his um, sunny vision of America to, and, and imparting that to the whole country. And that's where the power of the phrase comes from. That The country needed it. That's in a way why it has sounded kind of weird when later politicians have borrowed it. Because with, with Reagan, it like all the best acting, it, it came from the inside. Um, this was really how he thought about, uh, about his country, about himself. And later politicians have tried to synthesize it. And when you synthesize it, it always sounds a little false. Sam, um, how did Reagan's use of a shining city upon a hill, how did people on the left in America, how did Democrats react to that? Was there a kind of resentment that he had stolen the best idea, the best image in American politics? Was there a sense that they needed to get that idea back? Or was there, or was the reaction that they needed somehow to kind of tarnish this idea of a shining city? I think part of Reagan's success politically came from the division and the confusion that he sowed among liberals and left and how to respond. And there were both responses. Uh, we saw with the Cuomo types an attempt to take back that 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 uh, narrative, that city on a hill narrative. This is Mario Cuomo, who was the New York governor in the in the in the 1980s, who was also a, who was a kind of barnstorming great 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 speaker, possibly one of the strongest speakers of the of the 19 right. of the 1980s in American politics, certainly on the Democratic side. Mario Cuomo spoke at the Democratic conventions in the 80s, uh, trying to re reclaim the city on a hill narrative for Democrats. But there was also a lot of criticism of Reagan among left and liberal Americans. And and criticism, why, Sam? Criticism because of the the bombastic nationalism that the, the phrase seemed to imply? I mean, what, what, what was it that irked them about his use of that phrase? It was the, sh the shallowness of the phrase and, and exactly the jingoistic nationalism at a time of uh, increasing poverty and escalating Cold War tensions at the time. So... So there was a lot of uh, response by left and liberals pointing out the, the severe problems, social and political problems in America to, to Reagan's triumphalist use of it. 
David, in the 21st century, Barack Obama ran into trouble fairly early on, uh, didn't he, in his, in his presidency for making remarks that um, appeared to diminish or refute the idea of, of, of American exceptionalism, you know, a kind of realist assessment of the place of the United States in the world. And at the time, Republicans reacted um, quite sharply sometimes to some of the things that Obama said uh, in that regard and saw themselves, the Republican Party, as the, the owners in the Reaganite tradition of the idea of a city upon a hill. But then Trump was elected and you, uh, David, wrote a, a very memorable article in Atlantic in uh, 2017 in which you wrote about the, the souring of the idea of American exceptionalism in the Trump years. What, what, did, you, what did you mean by that? I, I don't think it was true of Ronald Reagan that he was a, a boastful nationalist, but he was a, he was, he was a man of, of great – he had a kind of great self-confidence. Barack Obama, his greatest strength and his greatest weakness was that he always brought a, a kind of outsider's eye. The United States. I mean, he was born in Hawaii, um, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. The United States, it's an American state, but yet the United States is, is far away. He spent more of his early life outside the United States and um, grown up in Indonesia. You know, he was, uh, his father was not an American citizen. Um, he was the first African-American. He had, he, had, he, was, he had this distant view. And that made him often um, a very, gave him a kind of clear-eyed understanding of how the United States worked. You know, I, I grew up in Canada. I, I think I often benefit from the, the outsider's eye and understanding the society. But it also meant he could never, he sometimes had trouble entering fully into the internal life of the country in, in, in accepting all of the malarkey, as Joe Biden calls it, that Americans do, the bunting and the cheering and the self-congratulation. He was a little bit too wry, a little bit too ironic, a little yeah. bit too distant. He once gave a compliment to Bob Dylan that I think he would have applied to himself, that, that he described how Dylan had come to a White House concert and had had played. And then he, the president of the United States, had gone up to congratulate Dylan. And Dylan made it clear he could not be less interested in talking to the president of the United States. <laughs> he was on it. He played, and now he was on his way out. And he said how much he liked that about Bob Dylan, that he didn't want him sort of, you know, you know, simpering at you the way so many other people did. And that was Obama himself, that he didn't just yeah. simper at you. He was honest. He did his bit, and then he was on his way to the green room. With with Trump, we got this nightmare version um, uh, of it, where Trump was at once someone who completely rejected the principles of American democracy and decency in every way. And yet he presented himself as this ultranationalism. He was interviewed by, I believe, Bill O'Reilly for Fox News. And O'Reilly asked him, isn't it true that Vladimir Putin is a killer? And Trump went on to say, and in something that could be borrowed from the far left of American self-criticism, well, we're killers too. We, we are, we're no different. We're no better. And the idea that you would, on national television, uh, a president would say that the United States is no better than this murderous dictator. And uh, there are many people in American life who would say that, but they tend not to make it to the presidency. How has his party dealt with it? Well, at first his party ignored it. Then his party denied it. And laterally, the party has internalized it. We're recording this podcast, but we're speaking the very day after Governor Ron DeSantis, the likely rival of Donald Trump and for the 2024 nomination, said in writing that we have no real stake in Ukraine and it's just a territorial dispute between, between Russia and our, 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 the most important thing we can do is militarily defend our border um, and that immigrants are the threat, not Russian invaders. We are reinventing a Republican Party that rejects the Reagan tradition and is after something new. 
you just mentioned immigrants there, I think, for the first time in this conversation. I mean, the, the, the record of the Reagan administration on immigration compared to later the later trajectory of Republican politics was was quite liberal. And that, I guess, was embedded in the idea of a city upon a hill, right? I mean, if we are this shining city upon a hill, and Reagan said this in, in terms, it's no wonder that people from around the world want to want to come here, want to come there. Um, so is is that part of the story of the kind of Trumpite rejection then, David, the notion that, that, that on some level a kind of recognition that if the United States is this special thing, it is if it is an arc, then it is also the corollary of that then is the responsibility to take in people from more benighted parts of the world. And if you reject that, you have to reject the idea of the city upon a hill. There's both the idea of immigration and, and the reality of immigration, um, that the, the level of global movement in the 1980s is unlike anything we are seeing now. We are living in the 2020s basically because of rising prosperity all over the planet and the declining costs of travel. The world is on the move in a way that was unimagined in the 1980s. In, in the Reagan years, the United States received about half a million legal and illegal immigrants a year. Um, Ronald Reagan in 1986, to deal with the backlog of illegal immigration, uh, offered a kind of amnesty that was intended to apply to maybe half a million people. Today, we have legal immigration of in excess of 1 million a year and uh, double that with asylum seekers and, and illegal immigrants and, and the mat and the flood of people into uh, other places. Um, it's just it's just it's the reality of it is different from then. So but does all that make the city upon a hill idea less attractive to Republicans, the need to deal with that or their perceived need to, to reject immigration? I think it has done it has done so because, as you say, the idea of immigration, Reagan's farewell address deals most explicitly or deals at great length with the theme of immigration. And he's very explicit about this is about refugees. He, he cites Vietnamese boat people, um, uh, people who are fleeing the Vietnamese communist state who are, um, and that they were the people who were, who were proving the value of the shining city on a hill concept. For all the pilgrims from all the lost places who are hurtling through the darkness toward home, we've done our part. And as I walk off into the city streets, a final word to the men and women of the Reagan revolution. My friends, we did it. We weren't just marking time. We made a difference. We made the city stronger. We made the city freer. And we left her in good hands. God bless you. And God bless the United States of America. Trump has tried to make the American idea more ethno-nationalist. And we are having much more fierce contests over the ethnocultural nature of the United States in the 2020s than we did in the 1980s. And maybe that's one of the reasons um, that the Trump people want to say, you know, this is not a, a, an example for the world. This is just for certain people in a certain place. And, uh, and you do it your way somewhere else. And maybe we have more to learn from Putin than Putin has to learn from us. I think the Republican Party does seem in crisis about American exceptionalism because Trump explicitly rejected it. Uh, Trump, Trump said uh, he never liked the idea and that he didn't believe in it, uh, at which point the follow-up question, of course, was asked of Hillary Clinton, who reaffirmed her commitment to, to American exceptionalism. So if you had told me 20 years ago that the Republicans would, would denounce American exceptionalism and the Democrats would rally around it, I, I would have thought that was crazy, but that's, that's what's happened. Um, the left has rejected the idea of 
and, and for some good reasons of New England and its town halls and innocent Puritans as the basis of the United States of America, and instead turned to the history of uh, the settlement of the uh, uh, Southern colonies and slavery. And so what we have in some ways is a situation which the right wing um, exemplified or illustrated by the 1776 project and the very powerful evangelicals, not maybe in the pages of Aeon and the Atlantic, but they have their own media. They have tried to nationalize Christianity and they have this claim that the United States was founded on Christian principles and terrible as it is, as history seems to have had a powerful effect in some way on the left, which has responded by saying, no, the United States was founded on slavery. <laughs> and the fact is, is that Christianity and slavery were the tools of settlement for the entire Western Hemisphere, were tools, major tools of settlement for the entire Western Hemisphere and all of the Americas. And, and the, just to interrupt you there, Sam, the, the 1619 project was was the the New York was um, begun as a as a sort of special issue in the New York Times magazine. I think a series of articles outlining an alternative origin myth, essentially for America, which dated. Well, tell us why 1619 rather than 1776. The date of the Declaration of Independence was the traditional date, but they went for 1619. They went for 1619 as the as the date when the first enslaved Africans arrived in in the Chesapeake, and. And it's a project that um, the subtitle of which I believe, interestingly, was changed from the magazine version uh, where it was called a history to the book version where it's now called a national origin story. Um, uh, and origin stories, I think, are kind of stories that are meant to be templates for hierarchy in a society. But it's in some ways a response or an imitation of the right wing's attempts to nationalize Christianity by by responding and saying no, we're going to nationalize slavery and make that the basis of political of of the distinct of the national identity. But your argument, Sam, is that it, it is it replicates the same structure of the city upon a hill, the the kind of the Reaganite positive exceptional, the boastful version of American exceptionalism, because it, it sure. similarly assumes a trajectory from the early 17th century through to the modern United States. It similarly assumes that there is some kind of special path which sets the emergence of that country, America, aside apart from other countries, even in the in the Western Hemisphere, except that the premise of the 1619 Project, which is to say of also of many people in the academic community and in the historical community in the United States today, you're saying is that it's what makes America distinctive and exceptional is its supposedly unique origins as a slave society. Is that, if I characterize you correctly? Yes, I think that's basically a, a, an important discussion. I think that's an important discussion to have because, because slavery and unfree labor more broadly was the basis of the settlement of the entire Western Hemisphere. I think 20 of the first 25 million people that came to the Western Hemisphere from Africa and Europe came as some form of unfree labor. The basis of national identity, there's a reason that countries usually choose physical or geographical landmarks to, to promote or in nationalist propaganda is because they're distinctive and unique. So it's strange to choose something as the basis of national identity that is common to the whole hemisphere. And, and so these kind of blinders of 
that Americans have to thinking of the United States as part of the Americas and having a history similar to the rest of the countries of the Americas is, is a major part of American exceptionalism. When Charles Dickens visited America, a country he didn't like because they kept stealing his copyrights, he, the, the, the national quality he was most horrified by was American boastfulness, which he brutally mocks all through Martin Chuzzlewit. And this is a pretty universal American quality. And sort of the culturally right-wing version of it is a boastful nationalism. And the culturally left-wing version is a kind of boastful masochism, which is if we can't be the best, if we're not the best, then there's only one other alternative, which is we must be, of course, the worst. Because we can't just be plain people like everybody else. So to follow on Sam, in, in the 17th and 18th century, not only was unfree labor the norm in the Western Hemisphere, it was the norm universally, everywhere. Free labor, free labor was the new idea. I think probably every, un, every enslaved person ever in the history of the world has thought, this is a terrible thing that is being done to me. But when Spartacus led his army of freed slaves away from the Romans, they took their slaves with them. The thought that slavery is wrong for me is something that is very naturally human beings. Um, but the thought that slavery is wrong, period, that is the radical idea. The first slave memoir written in English, written by uh, an escapee in the 18th century, opened with an autobiographical statement in which the freed slave wanted to make it clear that he was not a nobody. He was not nothing. He was not worthless. His father had owned slaves, by God. You know, that just shows the kind of important people they were back in the old country. So this idea that it was wrong, period, this is the revolutionary idea. And it's probably, it's born in this Anglo-Protestant tradition. It's not lived up to. And so the thing that, it, I, mean, I think there's a lot about the larger framework, the, the, the input cultural impact of the 1619 project that is beneficial of making the story of slavery central to the American narrative and not peripheral as it was in some tellings a generation ago. But the idea, project to say that there's something unique about this or that America has some, um, that the, the, the thing about America that you need to explain is not the part that was different from the rest of the world at that time, but the part that was in common with literally the rest of the world. That seems to me a strange project. Final question to both of you. It seems that what you're both describing is a situation today in the United States where the Republicans have moved away from that Reaganite optimism of, of faith in the shining city upon a hill, and the left have kind of inverted the idea of American exceptionalism. Can you imagine in a future a kind of restoration of the idea of American exceptionalism as a positive unifying force in American politics? I mean, even granted the idea that American exceptionalism is not actually in any real or important sense true, would you both nevertheless say that as an idea, as a myth, a city upon a hill has achieved good things in American history and perhaps deserves to be rekindled? Sam? Well, I think that I just think it's important to add that the left hasn't totally inverted it because to take the example we've been using the 1619 project, 1619 Project is both. It begins with this negative thing, this horrible thing, slavery, but then in the introduction repeatedly says this is what made American exceptional and this experience, historical experience of black Americans has perfected American democracy. So part of the power of the project comes from that it 
combines negative and positive American exceptionalism into one narrative. But I'll just say it's always up to the present generation to decide what they want the country to be. There's no dead hand of history controlling what people want their nation to be and what Americans want the United States to be like. Uh, so that is up to people to decide. David, if you were asked to write speeches for another American president of whichever party, would you be tempted to use the phrase a city upon a hill again? I, I don't like repurposing language. I think um, it, it never, it has to sound real. I mean, one of the things as a speechwriter you do is your first job is to spend hours and hours and hours listening to the person. Your job is to make them their best self, not something else. So I would not use Reagan's language for someone who isn't Reagan. Here's how I would use the concept and here's how I would not. I, I think we need to take accept the achievement of the American leaders of the 1940s and 50s that we do now live in a world in which there are lots of countries that have absorbed the, the, the things that the, America, that the United States built in the 18th and 19th century that in 1862 seemed up, uh, uncertain, maybe doomed. Uh, the things that, these things have been exported. And so an American can see in Japan and in France and in Germany, you know, in, in pure democracies, that, that these are societies that have absorbed much of what is best in the American creation. And that's an achievement. But where I would say the, term, the, the concept remains really true and powerful is there is one way even now the United States remains unique, different from all pure democracies, and that is its vast power. And it is important that that power be used for good purposes. And we are seeing that now in, in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that the United States has the power to save or doom Ukraine. And that's a power that you have to take very seriously. So, And you cannot just turn your eye and say it has nothing to do with us because you could so successfully help them. If you choose not to do that, that choice that choice is a free choice. I mean, there, there's, there are smaller countries that maybe can't. They, they, don't, they don't dare, but the United States always can. And so since 1914, the United States has had in its keeping not the democratic idea uh, as a monopoly, because that's been shared, but the protection of the democratic idea. And if you don't stand up to that, that's one of the things that was so shocking and surprising and upsetting about the Trump years is, is Trump really wanted to cast aside that responsibility. But there is no casting it aside because precisely because this is the part that remains exceptional and true. Um, I think maybe one possibility is a broadening of American exceptionalism in some ways. And, and Americans have been exceptional in, in creating uh, music, in, in creating cinema. Uh, American business has been ex exceptional and extraordinary in the world. American science leads the world. Uh, American schools are exceptional. Uh, so there are a lot of things that, that are truly innovative and dynamic about American society. But we remain locked into this kind of calcified state political stalemate. And, and perhaps um, not only in addition to learning from other countries, but uh, learning from some of the immigrants who have come to America uh, and, and become part of society uh, and become part of our better functioning institutions about how to fix some of the political problems would be helpful. I was talking there to David Frum and Sam Hazelby. You can't show that America is exceptional with evidence. Yet because so many people have believed it to be so, the idea in all its protean complexity has acquired its own historical reality. 
Part of the reason for the horror provoked by Trump was his utter disdain, or maybe his incomprehension, of what had been a dominant version of the City on the Hill story from the mid-20th century through Ronald Reagan and beyond. That of America as a nation of immigrants, a beacon of goodness in the world. That American self-conception was harder than ever to sustain with a president who wanted to build walls and gloried in power for its own sake. That is surely part of the reason why Amanda Gorman's poem at Biden's inauguration seemed so fitting to so many people. It was a reinvigorating restatement of an old idea, one that for all its potential chauvinism is still a source of hope. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope from Oxford University's Rothermere American Institute. Go to rai.ox.ac.uk to find out about our programme of free in-person and online events. Our mission is to support world-leading research on America and its place in the world in Oxford and to share that research as widely as possible. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And there are nearly 50 other episodes to listen to. Our producer is Emily Williams. Production assistance has come from Hannah Grieving. And my name is Adam Smith. Goodbye. <laughs>